everyone, and welcome back to another episode of All in Good Health, a podcast where we break down important global health issues and bring awareness to some of the world's most pressing health inequities. As global health students at York University, we aim to foster meaningful conversations and engage you in transforming the future of our world's health. My name is Laura. And my name is Antol, and we will be your hosts for today. We would like to begin our episode by acknowledging that the land on which we have gathered to create this content is the traditional territory of many indigenous nations, including the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples, as well as the current treaty holders, the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. We recognize and respect the enduring presence and deep connection of Indigenous peoples to the land known as Tuckeronto, which is now in home to many First Nation, Inuit, and Métis peoples. As we engage in conversations about global health, it is crucial that we reflect on the historical and ongoing impact of colonialism on both Indigenous and non-Indigenous communities around the world. Land acknowledgements are merely one step. It's essential that we honor our territory's treaties, respect Indigenous sovereignty, and actively engage in reconciliation efforts. Wherever you're listening from, we invite you to reflect on the land that you occupy, its history, and the relationships that exist within it. Let us all work towards creating a future built on understanding, respect, and justice. So in our last episode, we discussed the definition of global health and the role of health equity as a core value of this discipline. Mm -hmm. And today we're shifting our lens towards primary health care and what that looks like in different countries by taking a closer look at their healthcare systems. Yes, and I know we didn't touch on the Alma-Ada Declaration in our last episode, but we do want to emphasize it here just because it marked such a pivotal moment in the history of global health. The Alma-Ada Declaration was established in 1978, and it really put the spotlight on primary health care as the best path forward to achieving health for all. And this principle of health for all essentially aims to ensure that everyone can attain the best possible health outcomes or highest level of health. And I feel as though this marked a significant paradigm shift in the field of global health as more nations acknowledged health as a fundamental human right, reflecting the values also outlined in the World Health Organization's constitution. Yes. And this was also a key milestone in our journey towards achieving universal health coverage. For us to understand why primary health care is deemed as the best approach to achieving these goals, let's revisit what primary health care really means. So, Laura, would you like to explain? Yes. So, in its essence, primary health care is all about applying a comprehensive approach to health care to ensure that everyone has the potential to be healthy and stay healthy no matter their broader social conditions. So, no matter their socioeconomic status, their race, their ethnicity, or their place of residence. It places a large emphasis on providing people with the tools that they need in order to manage their own health across all stages of life through health education and disease prevention strategies. And I feel as though an important factor of primary health care is also that it brings health services as close as possible to where people live and work, so that's also easier for them to access. Mm. But I think the question remains how primary health care translates into action within the context of each country's health care system. So to answer that, we're going to start with an internal analysis, and we're going to look at the health system where we reside, which for us is Canada. So if you didn't know, Canada's health system is governed by the Canada Health Act of 1984, which sets out five criteria that provinces or territories must meet in order to receive um, federal funding for their health care insurance plans. And those five criteria are public administration, comprehensiveness, universality, portability, and accessibility. So based on those principles, Canada's health care system 
is supposed to ensure that everyone has access to healthcare services without incurring direct costs at the point of care. However, the delivery is still a combination of both public and private healthcare, which, with about two thirds of Canadians having some form of private health insurance, primarily through their employers or workplace. And while the system aims to be universal and affordable, whether it delivers on this promise is another question. Yes, it's certainly designed to provide equal access to care in the sense that it operates on the basis of need rather than ability to pay. But it's not truly universal or equitable because it fails to account for the many barriers that someone might experience in accessing care that go beyond the cost of it. Exactly. And for example, in Ontario, many people are unable to access care because they lack the documentation needed to obtain coverage to their provincial insurance plan, which here would be OHIP. Yes, and that primarily affects people living in precarious situations, which include those that are unhoused and experiencing homelessness, as well as those facing challenges with the immigration system. However, this issue can also affect those with coverage that simply lack access to a primary care provider within a reasonable distance. And we can definitely see this issue reflected in the number of Canadians who do not have a family doctor, which is about 19% of the population. And this is further stratified across the different provinces with 13% of people from Ontario, 27% of people from British Columbia, and 31% of people from Quebec lacking a primary care physician. But it's important to note here that this does not mean they lack access to primary care as a whole because they could still obtain primary care through a walk-in clinic or some sort of other facility. Um, however, it does mean that they lack a designated primary doctor, for example, which has its own set of consequences. There are also significant concerns about the long wait times and capacity issues, especially as it has been reported that many hospitals are operating at or very close to 100% capacity. And the rate of people leaving the ER without being seen by a provider has risen almost every year since 2003. And that's really concerning, especially when you look at the data. In 2022 alone, over 900,000 Canadians left the emergency room without receiving the care that they needed. And an explanation of this could be the growing shortage of physicians, especially family doctors, because Canada actually has fewer physicians and hospital beds per 1,000 population than the average OCED country. Mm -hmm. With that in mind, the debate around the privatization of care in Canada continues to be a prominent topic of discussion. And two of the major arguments that we hear in favor of a more private healthcare includes reduced wait times as well as decreased pressure on public healthcare system. But this is problematic because according to Health Canada, the government does not support a two-tiered healthcare system where memberships or any other forms of payments would be required or would help you um, expedite access to healthcare. And there is a lot to be said about the unintended consequences that would result from such an approach and a major argument that is made for the two-tier system, as you mentioned, is the long wait times experienced by individuals in a publicly funded healthcare system. And the argument is that by incorporating a coexisting private healthcare system, you would be able to distribute patients and thereby reduce wait times. However... Yeah. This argument is very flawed because the establishment of private healthcare systems would also take away from the health workforce available to work in a public healthcare facility. And 
by siphoning resources and personnel from the public healthcare system, we would only decrease the quality of care that is provided at the public healthcare facilities. So now we're essentially creating a deep-rooted systemic inequity between people based on socioeconomic status too. Yeah, it is concerning. And another big problem um, that's, that often comes up with private healthcare is that private clinics typically prioritize the interests of their shareholders. And by doing so, they may overlook what's actually in the best interest of their patients. Exactly. However, some governments are partnering with private companies to sustain public demand. And we saw this with Doug Ford and uh, his changes in 2023, and also new sectors of public health care being overshadowed by privatization, which is quite concerning, in my opinion. Unfortunately, public-private partnerships also end up costing the public more money because you have to help pay for the rental of privately operated facilities and equipment. So how does a country navigate a largely private health system? I think we should look at our neighbor, the United States, that has such a system in place. Ah, uh, yes, the United States. Their healthcare system is very complex because mm-hmm. they utilize a mix of private and public funding. And a majority of Americans rely on private insurance through their employers, but there is also Medicare and Medicaid that are government-funded supplementary programs, with Medicare's primary target being seniors age 65 and older or impaired individuals, and Medicaid being intended to provide coverage for people who might have limited resources or income, and it's based on an income threshold. And something interesting, I think, to point out here is that in Canada, we also utilize a mix of private and public funding. However, the difference is that here, private insurance is meant to supplement the one that you receive through your province. And it's not actually meant to serve as your primary source of health coverage, which often happens in the U.S. Yes, you're right. And it's funny because, as you may know, the friendly competition between Canada and the U.S., especially based on healthcare services, is longstanding with residents from either country always boasting proudly about their superior system. And while the United States system, yes, offers minimal wait times compared to Canada, it is heavily privatized and not universally accessible. And this can lead to disparities, especially among marginalized communities. Plus, the U.S. actually spends more money per capita on healthcare, even though it still faces issues with quality and satisfaction, which indicates that higher spending does not actually equate to better health outcomes or patient contentment. To provide more context, the United States actually spends $12,555 per capita on health, which is almost triple the OECD average of $4,986. And that's equal to 16.6% of their GDP compared to 9.2%, which is the average for the OECD countries. So something interesting to point out is that the United States healthcare system has been reported to offer superior outcomes for individuals contending with life-threatening illnesses. Feel as though it is crucial to recognize that this conclusion stems from an analysis of raw data that doesn't really take into account income, race, geographical location, or other socio-demographic factors, and such unadjusted data can mask significant inequities within these outcomes, potentially also obscuring the disparities in experiences of different populations. Yeah, and so while these findings suggest a higher level of care in certain critical conditions, they do not actually fully account for the complex interplay of socioeconomic factors, which influence accessibility to care and quality across diverse communities. And living in Canada, I've definitely found myself caught up in this narrative that our healthcare system is superior to that of the U.S. However, I think we should actually shift our focus to a country that is outperforming both Canada and the U.S. in this Ooh. domain. 
So let's explore the healthcare system of Germany, a country renowned for its efficiency and quality of care, to uncover some valuable lessons that could inspire improvements in our own system. Yeah, so Germany is often praised for having some of the world's best and most universal healthcare systems. And that's largely because, by law, residents of Germany are required to have health insurance. Right, and um, I remember learning that their default health insurance is provided through the states, and mm -hmm. it's known as, I think, the statutory health insurance. Yes. And that covers almost 90% of the population, so it's really good. Yes. And then there's also the option to opt for private insurance for those who are self-employed or who make a certain amount of income, but that only covers around 10%. Mm -hmm. So what we're seeing is that those who are uninsured only make up about 0.1% of the population. So Germany has really managed to deliver on that aspect of universality and it has really embodied this principle of solidarity. Yeah. But... That's the textbook experience. Mm -hmm. What I'm interested in hearing about is the lived experience for someone who's actually experienced it firsthand. So how was it, Laura? Like, experience the healthcare system in Germany. So yeah, having lived in Germany for a good chunk of my childhood, I must say I do feel very spoiled in retrospect. <laughs> um, Germany has definitely gotten its health system right, I feel. Um, and I was surprised, honestly, and I still am sometimes, at how different the system is here in Canada and in many other places, obviously. This is not to say that Germany's system is absolutely flawless. No system is. Every system in life is bound to have some issues. But broadly speaking, it is a very good system. So how have they achieved this so perceived perfect system then? Well, Germany's health insurance, although mandated by the state, is actually administered through these non-governmental entities called sickness funds, or in German, known as Krankenkassen. And these are essentially health insurance plans that operate on a not-for-profit basis to provide coverage to all residents. Okay, um, I really liked what you mentioned there with the sickness funds. Like, mm -hmm. can you explain a little bit more on, like, how are these funded then? Yeah, so the sickness funds are financed through mandatory wage contributions, which are shared by the employers and the employees, and they roughly make up around 14% of employees' gross wages. That money is then pulled into a health fund, which is ultimately shared or like distributed among all the different sickness funds uh, with the use of a risk-adjusted uh, capitation formula. And then there's also an additional contribution that's typically paid directly to the sickness fund. Um, and the amount is determined by the sickness fund itself based on your income. Um, but that's usually a relatively small amount. And for those that are privately insured, they pay a risk-related premium to the sickness funds themselves. But that's actually also still overseen by the government in order to ensure fairness. So then, all things considered, Germany's healthcare system is considered to be pretty comprehensive due to the scope of its coverage. And with the statutory health insurance covering such a wide range of services, such as inpatient and outpatient hospital care, preventative care, so all kinds of checkups and screenings at certain ages, dental care, we're jealous of that, yeah. vision care, mm. prescription drugs, rehabilitation, palliative care, maternity care, sick leave, and so much more. The list just keeps going on. Yeah, I miss that. <laughs> I would say it's it was quite weird to me that, you know, in Canada, we don't, at least in Ontario, but I'm sure like, it's generally like there's no universal vision care plan or a dental care plan, even though there's such important parts of your health. Mm -hmm. um, and in Germany, I could get that for free. Obviously, my experience um, might be spoiled in the sense that I was a child living there and um, any children under 18 do not bear any cost sharing. Your, your parents would also not pay um any extra fees um, for having children under their um, 
Cygnus Fund plans. Um, so I got access to a lot of services for free, um, even health spas. In Germany, there's something called a Kua, which is a like a health spa, which you can go to for preventative care as well as rehabilitation. And like, we don't must have that luxury nice. here. I know, it must be nice. <laughs> must be nice. And then something also worth mentioning is that in order to attract patients, sickness funds will usually offer a wide variety of different like deductibles and no claim bonuses. But overall, they offer the same list of benefits that are defined by the state that they must cover, which include the ones that Amtul was describing earlier. Oh, okay. So what we're seeing here then is that Germany's doing really well in terms of resources and capacity, especially in comparison to... Um, if we bring it back to Canada or the U.S. Yeah, so Germany has um, 4.5 practicing doctors per 1,000 population. Um, it also has 7.8 hospital beds per 1,000 population. And to, just to put that into context, in the U.S., there's only 2.7 practicing doctors per 1,000 and 2.8 hospital beds. And before we get excited as Canadians, we're not doing much better. We <laughs> yeah. have 2.8 practicing doctors per 1,000 population and 2.6 hospital beds. I know. It's quite that's scary. Tragic. Yeah. But again, that's not to say that they have the perfect system. There's a lot of ways that Germany could improve, especially pertaining to primary care. Primary care physicians in Germany are not really equally distributed across all regions of the country, which makes it harder for some people more than others to access a primary care provider. And there's also an anticipated shortage in the number of family doctors that we're going to have in the coming years, as the specialty is becoming less attractive to medical graduates. Okay, so all things considered, though, Germans do seem to be quite satisfied with their system mm -hmm. because... I remember reading in 2016, it was reported that 85% of Germans were satisfied with their healthcare system, which is way above the OCED average of 71%. And I can certainly say that I it served me well. The time I was there, it definitely <laughs> served me well. So we have talked a lot about different OECD countries, but now let's switch gears to talk about the healthcare system of a country that we don't hear about as often, and that is Cuba. Yes. I was interested in looking at Cuba just because I find that it's quite overlooked despite its success. The Faculty of Health here at York University, which we are both a part of, is actually offering a course to Cuba for the first time this year, all about the country's commitment to the human right to health and how they've managed to deliver on that, um, in spite of all the hardships that they've faced and that they continue to face, unfortunately. To give a brief rundown, though, Cuba has very much taken a health equity approach to its healthcare system by recognizing the importance of the social determinants of health, particularly education and improving the accessibility to healthcare. And the country has established a national health system that provides a lot of preventative care, which is really important, mm -hmm. while still ensuring access to higher level um, secondary and tertiary care without charging patients anything out of pocket. Even things that we do not have universal coverage for here in Canada, such as dental care or prescription drugs, are free in Cuba. I know. It's quite nice. And I read an article in The Conversation that was written by Rich Warner, where he described how Cuba is doing a lot with the little, which I mm. thought was a very good quote. 
Obviously, Cuba is operating in a very low-resource setting, and most healthcare providers, particularly doctors, are not fairly compensated for the amount of work that they do. But despite lacking access to the best tech or even lacking access to something as simple as running water, they manage to overcome these barriers and provide the best care possible to their patients. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. And we see this reflected in the country's health indicators also, mm-hmm. which largely resemble that of many high-income countries. Uh, they have roughly the same life expectancy and infant mortality rate as the UK, for example. They also outperform many developed countries such as the UK in terms of the number of doctors with about 8.4 doctors per 1,000 population. Yeah, so overall, Cuba has managed to strive in terms of equitable health care, despite all the setbacks that it's faced, especially with the U.S. embargo on the country, which has had a significant impact on the country and its access to resources. There's also a big issue surrounding brain drain, with a lot of health professionals leaving to study or work in other countries, but that's beyond the scope of this um, of this episode. But regardless, let's take a minute to acknowledge that Cuba has proven that a country does not have to be wealthy in order to provide universal health coverage, and its success can largely be attributed to its focus on primary health care, emphasizing prevention-based care, and additionally prioritizing universal education. Yes. So I think ending off on Cuba is is a good idea, Mm -hmm. and it's a really good way to underscore the importance of primary health care, especially in achieving health equity, which is so integral to global health. So then that's it from us for this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Yes. And just wanted to point out, though, by highlighting the differences between the healthcare systems that we've discussed today, our aim was not to say that one system is inherently better than the other or that there is a one-size-fits-all solution to healthcare. Yeah. Each healthcare system will come with their own advantages and disadvantages. And obviously, these systems are very complex. So the information that we have provided here is not meant to be a full comprehensive review of each country's system. Yeah. But hopefully it still became apparent to you that the different approaches work differently depending on the context and the setting of a country. And some country systems are just designed inherently with the intention to prioritize primary health care and truly provide universal health coverage, which we saw in Cuba. And I think in Canada and in many other parts of the world, we can definitely learn from them. Certainly. So thank you so much for tuning into this episode. We hope that you will continue to follow our journey as we dive into more topics in future episodes. To stay connected with us and receive the latest updates, please follow our Instagram page at allingh_podcast. We would also appreciate hearing your feedback and any ideas you have for future episodes. So feel free to check out our Instagram where we have included a feedback form if you are interested. You can also message us directly on Instagram or you can email us at allingh_podcast at gmail.com. So until next time, let's remain all in good health. It's important to note that the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of York University or any affiliated institutions. As university students, we aim to foster open discussions and welcome diverse perspectives, but these discussions are personal and independent. Our affiliation with the university is purely for identification purposes, and the content of this podcast is not endorsed or sanctioned by York University itself.